right. Well, it is good to see you here today. Can you look at someone next to you and say, today is Thursday? Can you do that? <sighs> Can you look at someone next to you and say, yesterday was Wednesday? <laughs> and tomorrow is Friday? All right. Uh, if you're here and you're new, uh, you're probably wondering what kind of chronological confusion has gotten into this group of people. Uh, we're in a series on the final week of Jesus, the last week of Jesus' life, and today we're in Thursday. Last week we looked at what Thursday was, next week we're going to look at what Friday is, and we're going to just walk through as we try and kind of slow play the last week of Jesus' life and spread that out over a period of six weeks uh, just to kind of help us to understand and identify a little bit more of what Jesus has done for us. Um, as we kind of build into that, I want to set this up by telling you, reminding, actually reminding a lot of you, a lot of you may know this, uh, but this is one of my favorite memories from childhood, um, and I'll just tell it as I remember it. I was a young kid, and one of the things that uh, I loved doing when I was a kid was going to 7-Eleven and getting a Slurpee. Um, my son Elijah, my daughter Elise loved getting Slurpees from 7-Eleven also. I think they're a chip off the old block, but... I loved uh, getting Slurpees when I was little, and this one particular time, it was around Halloween, seasonal specials going on there. It wasn't like it is today where you can just go and get your own Slurpee, pay for it, and check out and drink it. You had to ask the person, uh, the clerk at 7-Eleven for the Slurpee that you wanted, and they would turn around and they would fill up your cup and they would give it to you, and you'd drink it, pay for it, and then you would go. And so that's the way it was, and that day when I was young elementary school student, um, just really in love with Slurpees. And so we walked up to the counter, and my dad asked me, what kind of Slurpee do you want? <laughs> I saw the Coke Slurpee, which I didn't want that day, and there was a special blue Halloween Slurpee that I really was intrigued by. And so I said, Dad, what's that blue Slurpee? And so my dad, being a fresh off the boat, even though he'd been off the boat for many years, he was a fresh off the boat Korean man, and he asked the man behind the counter who sounded like he was a fresh off the boat Indian man, my dad asked him, what's that blue one? And without turning around, the 7-Eleven clerk said, which is blue? So my dad, Korean man, fresh off the boat, had no conception in his mind that during Halloween, 7-Eleven could actually put out a product called Witch's Brew. All he heard was, Witch is Blue. And so my dad responded, and he said, that blue one, even louder. And so the man behind the counter responded even louder, Witch's Brew. <laughs> At this point, my dad's Korean forearms were popping out and he was getting quite angry. And he said, that blue one right there. And the man, even more defiantly, said, which is blue? This conversation was going nowhere quickly. I was observing. I was completely confused. And even more so when my dad said, gotcha, which means let's go. And we walked out of there. My dad was thinking, what is wrong with this man? I think the man was thinking, what is wrong with that man? And the whole time I'm thinking... Where's my Slurpee? What happened? And so we walked out of that 7-Eleven without getting a Slurpee. It was a sad and tragic day. But looking back, it was one of my funnier memories in life. Who was at fault during that time? I don't think, I don't think you could fault the man. I don't think you could fault my dad. All he wanted to know was, if you're going to give my son a cup, I want to know what's in the cup that we're giving to my son. 
as we talk about the final week of Jesus' life, we come to Thursday. And on Thursday, we see another father, another son, and probably the most important cup in the history of the world. And the question that Gethsemane begs us to ask is what's in that cup that the father's giving to his son? Up until this point in Jesus' life, you've known he's done a lot of miracles. He's hung out with a lot of shady people. But as uh, the great Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, says, there's nothing in Jesus to suggest that he's anything other than a joyful, jovial man who got angry at the appropriate moments, but in large part, he was a man whose life was filled with the blessing of God, and yet we call him a man of sorrows. Where does that title come from? I propose and submit to you that the beginning of this moniker, the man of sorrows, comes with the events of what happens on Thursday night. We entered into this journey on Sunday. Jesus rode into fanfare applause as he came in as the king of Jerusalem, the king of the Jews. On Monday, Jesus cleansed the temple as his first act as the so-called king of the Jews. On Tuesday, he saw not uh, someone in the temple elite uh, to praise, but he saw a poor old woman who gave her last two pennies to the offering of the temple, and he praised her. On Wednesday last week, we saw a sinful woman anointing Jesus with oil, and it didn't make sense to anybody else, but what Jesus is saying is you can't question a woman's breakthrough because you don't know what she's been through, and unless you know the forgiveness of God, then you won't know what it means to radically give yourself in love to other people, and that brings us to Thursday night. But what you've realized with every day's events, when you get to the evening or you get to the end of the passage, the rising opposition hits a new level with each day that goes on. And so we come to Thursday night, what we will see to be the last night of Jesus' life. What happens on Thursday is Jesus has the Passover meal with his disciples, which they don't know, but he knows will be the last supper that he ever shares with them. And within a few hours after he washes his feet, well, the feet of his disciples predicts that one of them will betray him. A few hours after that, he's arrested, he's tried, and a few hours after the Last Supper, he's nailed to a cross, condemned as a common criminal. But what happens in between the Last Supper and the washing of feet and his arrest is the subject of our time today. We're going to look from the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 14. We're going to read verses 32 through 42. A father, a son, a cup is what we're looking at today. What does this tell us? What is the message of Thursday? And why is it so deeply significant? And why does this man and his events of Thursday and Friday cause us to call him the man of sorrows? Mark 14, verses 32 through 42. This is God's word. Important, significant, poignant, powerful, often misunderstood passage of Scripture. This is God's word. It says, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here. Keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. 
Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is God's word. Last summer, um, during part of my sabbatical leave, I went up to Vancouver, a school called Regent College, and I took a class, Daryl Johnson, um, one of the famed preachers of Canada. The class was called The Greatest Weekend in History. And the class was about the events of Good Friday and Silent Saturday and Resurrection Sunday. But in order to get to that place, we would read through the gospel accounts. And as he got to this place in Gethsemane, he said, in all my years as a pastor, as a preacher, he said, I've never preached on this passage. He said, there's something so holy and divine about this passage that I could never do it appropriate justice. And I've never preached on it in 40 years of my life. And, and then he went on to the next passage of Scripture. Uh, he's not the only one. I've heard that said from other pastors as well, other preachers as well. This is holy ground in which we come this morning. Um, the ground is called Gethsemane, and it means the oil press. It means it's at the bottom of the Mount of Olives. Um, it's a place where Jesus came to often, and it's here where Thursday night took place. And as we look at Thursday night, I just want to bring out two thoughts, um, two thoughts after which we're going to come and receive a different cup from Jesus. But the first thought is this, Jesus, the last night of his life, just hours before he was to be crucified, beaten, whipped, mocked, scorned, crown of thorns, lashed spear through his side. A few hours before this, uh, Thursday night gives us a couple very important messages. The first message is this, that people will fail you, but God will not. People will fail you, but God will not. Here is Jesus. You read it and you hear the intensity of the agony with which Jesus is being afflicted, the travail of his soul as he comes into this place. It's so deep an anguish that as he goes to this familiar garden, he brings his 11 disciples because Judas has gone to betray him, sell him out for 30 pieces of silver, brings the other 11, and he sits eight at the entrance to the garden, and he says to his three closest, Peter, James, and John, he says, come with me, guys. I need you to pray with me because I'm in my moment, in my hour of greatest need. Here you see in the Garden of Gethsemane, the good shepherd has entered into the valley of the shadow of death. And he needs people, he needs companions to walk with through this journey, through death's dark shadow. Have you ever been in a place where your soul was so overwhelmed that you knew, that you knew in your heart that you could not get out of this alone? That you knew that you needed people in order to help you? This is Jesus here, 
fully God and fully, not half God and half man. This is the half man part. It's not that. He's fully God and fully human, yet in that fullness of, of humanity, he says, I need you. Because you see, when you experience deep in your heart the acute need for people in your life, that is not a sign of your deficiency, that is a sign of your humanity. That's not a sign that you are somehow imperfect, it's a sign that you are perfectly created in the image of God who himself dwells in a community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That before sin entered into another garden, the Garden of Eden, God looked at humanity and said, it's not good for a person to be alone. In fact, your deep longing for companionship, for house church members, for a spouse, for a BFF, for whatever it is, is a sign that you are perfectly and completely human. That's what it's saying. What Jesus is saying is, I need people. You need people. If Jesus, the God-man, needed people, will it not be that much more true of you and me? We need people, even the best. Jesus is saying he shows that to us. We need house church. We need SNF. We need our youth ministry. We need people around us. Even this, this week, I was going through some, some, some stuff in life, just like you go through stuff, I go through stuff, and, and I was sharing some of that with Olivia last night as we were meeting with our house church shepherds. I said to some of our house church shepherds, I said, hey, uh, I need you guys to pray for me about these things. Because there's this stuff going down in my heart and in my life, and, and I need you to pray for me. That's a sign of our humanity, that we need people in our lives, that we need people to walk with, we need people to pray for us, we need people to encourage us. And here's Jesus in his moment of greatest need, anguish of soul. He says to Peter, James, and John, hey, can you come and, and can you pray for me? Any of us in a place like that this morning where you've been trying to do it on your own and you realize, man, if I keep on going at this pace, it's breakneck, I can't make it, I need people. God is saying, yeah, you need people because that's one of the great messages of Thursday that we all need people. We all need people. And so here's Jesus. He says, I need you. Peter, James, John, my most faithful confidants, the one who's seen everything, from the transfiguration, the one who walked on water, the one who said, no matter if everyone else leaves you, Jesus, I will never leave you. He says to these three people, I need you. Can you come and can you pray for me? And so here's Jesus. He says, they went to a place called Gethsemane. Sit here and pray. Soul is overwhelmed. Stay here. Keep watch. Verse 35, going a little further, he fell and he prayed. And then in verse 37, then he returned to his disciples and found them praying. <laughs> That's not what it says. Verse 37, then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Whatever Jesus served up at that last supper gave them a little bit of food coma. And so when Jesus needs them the most, they're dozing. They've fallen asleep. They're snoozing when Jesus is in his moment of greatest need. Don't you hate when that happens? <laughs> when you need someone to pray for you? There are times when I've gone to, uh, to Ecuador, to the Dominican Republic, and we've come and knelt in front of the congregation and been commissioned and, and prayed for, and then we get sent off, and we are in the mission field for 10 days or 7 days or 2 weeks or whatever it is, and, and while in Ecuador, I get a text message from one of our 
church people saying, hey, DL, how are you? Wondering if you can meet up with me sometime for lunch this week. (laughs) And in my passive-aggressive state, I say, it seems like you're really praying for us a lot down here in Ecuador, aren't you? (laughs) Don't you hate when that happens? When you're supposed, this is my moment of greatest need. I've got this medical examination that's going to determine my future. And you share that with your friends. I've got this job interview that this is life and death, and if I don't get it, then we're going to get kicked out of our home. I need you to pray. And that day comes, and that day goes. I'm taking the SAT. I'm taking the FSA. I'm taking whatever three letters you can put together. I'm taking this big exam, and it's, it's causing me overwhelming sorrow to the point of stress. What are you going to do? Can you pray for me? And that day comes, and that day goes, and the next day comes, and the next day goes, and on and on and on it goes. And the people who said they would check up on you have forgotten about your greatest need. Don't you hate when that happens? I'll be praying for you. I'll be praying for you. Jesus is here to say, hey, we need people, but people are going to fail you. They're going to fail you. <laughs> so he, he, he finds them sleeping, and he says, yo, just an hour. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, I need you to pray for me, but listen, when you pray, you get strengthened. Every time someone says, pray for me, yeah, you're praying for them, but you are getting strengthened for the battle. Couldn't you pray? And then he goes, once more he goes and he prays, same thing when he came back. He found them, this time praying. No, it says, he came back, found them sleeping again because their eyes were heavy. (laughs) That's craziness. Jesus comes and they say, they did not know what to say to him. Man, that's the worst. When you get busted in your prayerlessness when you ought to be praying for your friend. Like, it's your best friend. Not just some guy you said on the street, hey, homeless person I've never seen, I'll never see before, or person, dude, I've never met, or or friend's friend of a friend of a friend of a friend. I said, I'll pray for them. It's not, it's your best friend. And he catches them. They're wiping the slobber off their mouth. No, Jesus, how They didn't know what to say. Third time's a charm. He goes away and he prays again. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. Who is this? It's Peter, James, John. James and John, the sons of thunder, the brothers. John, it was, of him it was said, he is the beloved disciple, the one whom I love. Peter, the one who said, even if everyone else falls away, not me, Jesus. I'm going to stand with you. You rise, I rise. You fall, I fall. I'm with you, Jesus. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. And three times in Jesus' moment of greatest need, he fails him because the best of men are just that, at best, just men. Even the ones who swear their allegiance to you, even your spouse, even your house church shepherd, even your Sunday school teacher, even your pastor, a lot of times these people are going to disappoint you. Best of people are at best simply that, just people. I had a friend, <clears throat> I had a friend in college, good friend. We got along really well, hung out a lot together. And after we graduated, he moved to another country. Kept in touch um, here and there. But one day while I was uh, still in seminary, he came from his foreign country and he came to visit me. And uh, we just spent like three days, four days together, hanging out, doing stuff, whatever, whatever, whatever. And as I was uh, taking him back to the airport, 
he was kind of like a sappy, sentimental guy. And so he just started saying all this like sappy, sentimental stuff. And as we're pulling into the departure section of Orlando International Airport, he said, Dave, uh, thanks for showing me around. Had a great week. And then he said, whenever you need, I'm just a phone call away. And if you say the word, I'm on the next flight here to Orlando. I was like, thanks, man. Sappy, sentimental response to him. Gave him a hug and said, okay, have a great flight. We'll see you when we see you. We left. Many years later, 15 years later, 10 years later, however many years later, um, I have gone to visit my friend, the city. I never went to visit him, but there would always be reason for me to go to his city. And every time I would go, whether I'd be a single person or a married person or, with, or, or a dad, going by myself or going with family, about four or five times I'll hit him up and say, yo, I'm here in town, be here for the next three days. Would love to see you. Let's grab some food. Let's catch up. And every single time, he said to me, sorry, I don't have time to see you. Something came up. Something was a one time he said, I could see you, but I'm kind of far from where you are. Could you take the train over to where I am? And I thought to myself, that's a far cry from just say the word, I'm on the next plane to Orlando. Because we need people but people will fail us, even the best ones. You need house church, but your house church will fail you. You need your shepherds, but your shepherds will fail you. You need your friends, but your friends will fail you. You need your youth pastor, you need, you need your pastor, but we will fail you, absolutely. You need SNF but your youth ministry will fail you. We were made for people, but people will fail. It's the reality. Right? You have to understand that, and you have to deal with that reality. Yeah, we wish it weren't true, but it is, and Jesus is showing us it is, but he says the second part of that is that God will not. You need your house church, but your house church isn't your God. You need your youth fellow youth students, but your youth ministry is not your God. They will fail you, but God will not. Because you look at three times they fail. At the end of this passage, Jesus, who is so in need of support that he falters to the ground, at the end he says, the time has come. Let's rise and let's go. A sign of victory, like let's do what we were put on this earth to do. Why? How could that happen when his friends failed him it's because of what he was doing in the absence of his friends. He was praying. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane, John 18, 2 says they had frequently gone to that. But why did Jesus choose the Garden of Gethsemane? In large part because Judas knew the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew that's where Jesus was going to be. Jesus wasn't trying to hide. He's not playing hide and seek. He's saying, when it's my time to go, I'm going to go on my own accord. You're not going to play hide and seek. I'm going to go because this is what I was put on this earth to do. You're going to have no problems finding me. And Judas knew the one place I can find Jesus is in Gethsemane because that's where he's constantly going when he's in his time of need. When John the Baptist was beheaded, Jesus went to the presence of the Father. When his disciples were frustrating him, he went to the presence of his Father. Whenever Jesus had a need, when he had to choose his 12 disciples, Jesus went to the Father. Everybody knew where Jesus was going to be because Jesus knew that my people are going to fail me. 
but my God will never fail. My friends, we need to understand this. This is a message that Jesus is giving the last night of his life. You who put all of your hope for companionship and for love and for whatever it is, support in the lives of people, they're going to fail you. They're going to fail you, and that's a 100% reality. doesn't mean they're going to fail you 100% of the time. Definitely not. Hopefully, it'll be closer to 99% of the time. They won't fail you, but there will definitely be times when they fail. Listen, if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate, fully God, fully man, needed to pray in his moment of weakness, do you not think that we will need to do the same in our moment of weakness, in, in our moments of need? Hey, some of us are going through those times right now, and we're trying to do it one of two ways. Either we're just trying to do it all on our own, We're trying to do it all with other people. We're trying to do it all with whatever it is, only with prayer, not sharing our burdens with other people. We're created for both, a need for God, a need for people, and understanding that people will fail you, but God will not. And so even though three times denied, Jesus says, let's go and let's do that. But what was it that precipitated all of these things? The second thought that we see here is that you can drink from the cup of God's blessing because Jesus drank from the cup of God's wrath. If you understand this, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He began to be deeply distressed and troubled. What was it that was distressing and troubling the Son of God? I think most readers, most people would say, Jesus is deathly afraid of his death here. That this is what's causing him so much fear, the torture, the whipping, the nails on the cross to be crucified was the worst way to die because it was, no lo- it was not simply about death, it was about prolonged suffering in order to make an example out of the one being hung and crucified. That's what most people think. Jesus is thinking about that. But I think it's a whole lot more than that, things that we will never understand, things that we'll never be able to experience. But let's just try to break it down here. It says in verse 33, as he takes them, it says, he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Literally, it says, suddenly he was astonished and was deeply troubled. This word deeply, you could be troubled about a lot of things. I'd be troubled in the last minute of the basketball game last night when it looked like Virginia was losing. Oh, my soul is troubled. That's not what he's talking about, right? We talk about trouble, but there is no way to really articulate the Greek understanding of what troubled really means. The only, this is how a a man named Leon Morris says it. It's like, if you can imagine uh, the utter and absolute horror show that it would be if you would walk into your home and realize that your home had been broken into. Not only had it been broken into, but your family members were home at the time of the break-in, and they were all killed. You walk into a home, your family members are all dead. Not only are they dead, okay, this is not, I'm not making this up, this is Leon Morris, your family members have all been dismembered. Their body parts have been chopped up. And they've been hung from the ceiling for whomever to walk in to see. This is the effect of the word 
to be troubled. When you walk into your house and you see those things, you see something, and all of a sudden you're troubled, this is in a sense the Greek word that's being used here. But the Greek word could never communicate and convey what is really going on here. Jesus says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Here's what Jesus is saying. Here's my soul. In every direction, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. Over me, under me, around me, 360 degrees, my soul is drowning in sorrow. That's what he's saying, to the point where it's a, a, a cloud rising up to choke me so that I can barely breathe, and if I continue in this, I will be choked out to death. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Is that how your God, your Savior, your Lord, your Master, your Teacher approaches death, is what some would say. Especially when you think about how many people have faced death in human history. You think about the Romans and the Greeks and the stories they tell of heroic men who stand in the face of death and they triumphantly and boldly welcome death. You think about what Plato wrote about Socrates that said when Socrates died, he was making jokes and he was laughing at death as it came upon him. You think about the many men and women who died at the hands of martyrs, who stared down the barrel of a rifle, who stared down the edge of a spear, even his own disciples. Is the master no greater than the disciple? Is Jesus this deathly afraid of the death that is to confront him in just a few? Is that what it's about? I dare say no, that's not what is happening in this passage. It's not about death that causes this kind of sorrow and this overwhelming burden within Jesus. I think our answer is found in the next few verses. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Understand this, when it says he fell to the ground, it is in the continual present tense. So what it's saying is going a little farther, he fell. And when he got up to go a little further, he fell again. And when he got up, he fell again. And when he got up, he fell again. He could not walk because of the prospect that was confronting him in this moment, that Jesus was staggering as he was going from one place to the next. What was it that's causing him to stagger in this way, that each time he rises, he cannot even get so much as a couple steps before he falls again? He prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. What is this hour referring to? Abba, Father, he said. Abba, Father. The most intimate expression that a child could give to their dad. It's like an Asian little boy saying, Abba, Daddy, I need you. My only son, Elijah, said, Hey, Abba, I'm hurting. Can you help me? I know you can help me. What was it that was causing this anguish? Appa, everything is possible. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The anguish of soul that is tormenting Jesus 
is all the furies of hell tempting him to say no to this cup. I want to take a quick detour here to show you something on the screen of when I became a father for the first time to my only son, and I gave him a cup for him to drink. I want to let you watch this for just a couple seconds. First time drinking hot chocolate. Ah, ah. That's hot, Nanny. Touch up. She say you're about Elijah. Every desire of my heart was to let him see the beauty of hot chocolate. But without having blown it enough, it was too hot for him to drink. What kind of a, what kind of a person would I be if I continued to pour hot chocolate, hot chocolate down his throat when he asked me, and told me that it was too much for him to bear. Well, that's me as a father. Dad, it's too hot. I don't want to drink from that cup. Jesus is saying, Abba, there's a cup that's been given to me. And there's something in that cup. Something in that cup. And, and, and if it's possible, I don't want to drink that cup. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The question that we ask is a question that my dad asked at 7-Eleven. What's in that cup then? What is it? The prophets had written about it. You can trust. You don't have to turn. But in Jeremiah 25, verse 15, the Lord God said, take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. Earlier, it was the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 51 who said in verse 17, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You who have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes men stagger. The prophets were saying that there is a cup filled with the wrath of God that was meant to be drunk by the wickedness of the nations. And if the nations would actually drink of it, that they would stagger from the sheer weight of the glory of God demonstrated in that wrath. Even before Jesus even drinks of this cup, he rises and he falls. He rises and he falls. Literally, Jesus is the one who is staggering at the mere thought of drinking from this cup.
Can you imagine? He, he's about to drink the cup that no man or woman has ever had to drink from. The cup of God's infinite and eternal firestorm of wrath, a volcanic eruption, the Mount St. Helens of God's fury concentrated in one single cup. And the thought of drinking that from the one who only knew, Abba Father, from all eternity, that's all I know, is whenever I needed anything, my father was there. Whenever I needed anything, my dad was there. He loved me. I loved him. Eternal intimacy. We loved each other. There was never a moment to question his love. And yet in this moment, Jesus is thinking. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death because of the sheer thought of having to drink the wrath of God that was deserved by the nations, not only by the wicked nations, but by every single one. Of us. This was God's wrath against all of humanity that was concentrated in a cup for Jesus to drink. And that cup was it makes Jesus stagger and stumble and say, If it's possible, let there be another way. But if there's no other way, I'm surrendered to the will of God, whatever you desire. You see, in that cup, what Jesus was thinking was all of God's wrath for every sin that you and I have ever committed, all of our lying to our parents, all of our cheating on our spouse, all of our lust, all of our secret sins, all of our anger, all of our lying, all of our cursing, all of our self-righteousness, all of our half-truths, all of the human trafficking, all of the brokenness, all of the pain that we've inflicted, all of the gossip, every sin that any human had ever committed and God's furious wrath against sin. Sinful humanity concentrated in that place. That's what causes Jesus to say, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Could you ever then, could you ever look at Jesus at the cross and say, he doesn't love me? Could you ever, for a second, think about what God has done and say, oh, look at my life, my life stinks. God doesn't care about me. Could it ever be said, when we think about the cup that Jesus is drinking from here, could we ever again say, God does not care for me? This is the message of Thursday night, my friends. Why, Jonathan Edwards says, why did God not wait to reveal this cup to Jesus when he's hanging on a cross, nailed, when he cannot come down from the cross, why did he show it to him the night before? It's because Jesus still had a choice to either take this cup and drink it or to say, God, I will not, and I will let all of humanity suffer and die in eternity. Do you understand this? Every demon spirit force of hell is fighting against him. For 40 days in the desert, not in a garden, in a desert, Satan tempted him. said, you could have all of this, just bow down and worship me. What was he saying? He said, you could have everything, just you won't have to go to the cross. And that was a temptation given to Jesus. And when Jesus withstood three times, says Satan left him until an opportune time and three times Jesus goes to prayer and, and, and it, this is it, all, this is the battle royal, all the fury of hell fighting because he knows that if Jesus says, let the cup pass from me, then every single person would die and spend an eternity in eternal condemnation. 
This is the cup and the anguish of Gethsemane. Everything that you and I had ever done wrong. Listen, even if you're the best person, you think you're the best person, you count up all the sins that you've committed. If, you've, if you only commit one sin a day, and what sin is, it's anything you do against God in thought, word, deed, emotion, motivation, motivation. doesn't matter if you don't do it. If your thoughts are wrong, you've already committed sin. And if you only commit sin three times a day, a thousand times a year, you're 30 years old, 30,000 sins that you bear the wrath of God for. Who of us can stand before God and say, I don't, deser- I don't deserve this. I deserve to go to heaven. Even the best of us in here, even the best of us in here fall woefully short of the glory of God. And so Jesus says, Father, if it's possible for there to be another way than for me to drink this cup of eternal and infernal wrath, then let it be. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And after stealing himself in prayer, Jesus says, arise, let's go. I'll drink the cup, the very last drop, and I will lick it dry so that for those who put their trust in me, there is no wrath of God remaining. All there is left for you and me, if we believe in the name of the Son of God, is God's not eternal wrath, but his eternal love, his eternal favor, his eternal grace, his eternal mercy, his eternal blessing. That's all there is left for you and for me. And as part of the blessing that we drink from, the only one who could ever call God Abba lost all of that in drinking the cup of wrath and dying on the cross as the Father turns his face away. The result for you and me is that none of those of us who could never imagine being intimate with God, now we can call him our Abba Father. We can say, God, our, you're our Father, and everything you want, you, everything we ask is possible for you. We can come with that kind of a boldness, that kind of a confidence, knowing that there's no wrath left for us, that even if we drink a, the last drop of the wrath, it would obliter- obliterate us. But when we went to drink from the cup of wrath, there was nothing left. And in its place, a cup of blessing that overflowed with God's goodness and his love for his people. What is, what is Jesus telling us on Thursday night? He's telling us, yeah, you need people, but they're going to fail, but God will not. And here's how you know. Here's how you know that God will never fail you. Because the only begotten Son of God in his moment of greatest need, when he absorbed the infinite sins of humanity and the infinite wrath of God, was abandoned so that those of us who should have been abandoned by God would receive the overflowing blessing of God in our lives. That's the grace of God. He traded his wrath for goodness. Now all we have to drink is of the goodness of God, and we can know, and we can know that this is who God is. We (laughs) never have sung truer words than when we look at the cross And we say, I'll never know 
how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. It's the message of Thursday. It's actually quite simple. It's Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Let's pray. As we prepare to come to a table of God's grace for those who have professed their faith in him, and for those of us who will not come to this table yet because we haven't made that public profession of faith, understanding what our sins did to Jesus. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Let's not come lightly before the cross or before the presence of our holy God. Can we just spend a few moments confessing our sins before God? I'm sorry for rejecting you. Sorry for thinking I didn't need you. Sorry for thinking that I could do life apart from you. Sorry for my sins, the ones you know about but that I've been scared to tell you, the ones that no one else knows about, the ones that everyone knows about, the ones that everyone knows about and they've come to define me. Lord, show me that they don't define me anymore. I'm not defined by my past. I'm defined by my future, secured by Jesus. not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ to be the forgiver of your sins master of your life you can do that today now also you can do that now it's asking Jesus to come in to save you to trust in him to take the wrath of God for you so that you could be set free spend a few moments right now just praying to the Lord prayers of confession asking that he would forgive us and cleanse us, clear our conscience so that we could understand and know that all that's left is infinite, eternal delight and love from the Father to his children that he loves. Let's pray for a couple moments. Father in heaven, we thank you. As we think about what your son went through, 
Father, this was not cosmic level child abuse that the heavenly DCF needs to come and intervene. It's not about that. It's about the fact that we have secured for ourselves the wrath of God against sinful humanity. The only acceptable way for us to be brought into relationship with the Father, to have a home in heaven where our Father dwells, is for somebody to take that punishment, to remove the wrath of God against sinful humanity. And Jesus drank the cup fully in order that we might now have nothing but the cup of God's blessing. Thank you that this is what you do, how much you love us. Our only boast is in the cross, not in what we do for you, not in what we have done, not in what we will do, but our only boast is in what Jesus has done for us to forgive us, to make us clean. So Father, as we come to this table, your son Jesus instituted for us. We pray that it would be an overflowing expression of the blessing of God in our lives. We thank you so much. We love you because you loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray.